0: Welcome to Throwing Light. This is episode nine. It's a privilege. So I want to talk about privilege and break down what the heck that means. This is actually going to be kind of a two-part series. At some point, I'm going to do an episode on breaking down what the heck gender is. But before we get into it, Throwing Light is about to go every two weeks. So I will post every other Thursday instead of every Thursday. I want to eventually get back to every week, but it's not Possible to do that with my current life. So that's what we're doing, and it's going to be awesome. And I have this fun idea for making Throwing Light Thursday a thing every Thursday. And even if there's not an episode coming out, we do random acts of kindness and fun shit. <laughs> also, I'm sick today. So if I sound a little, bleh, <laughs> that's not going to translate. So I don't feel great. I stayed home from work today and recording this episode has kind of been weighing on me all day, but I need to get it done because especially since we're going every two weeks, I really want to make sure that it comes out next Thursday. So a couple of things before we get into the episode. Can we talk about how privilege is a hard freaking word to spell? (laughs) There's so many I's, but then there's an E. I just get confused. It's difficult, you guys. So current events, a word about current events. I'm not really doing them right now. (laughs) I have had to pull back a little for my own mental health. And so I'm not going to talk about specific things going on right now. However, you may discover that a lot of what I'm talking about with privilege is relevant. So moving on, Joshua Rothman wrote... An article called The Origins of Privilege in May 2014 for The New Yorker. And he defined privilege as some people benefit from unearned and largely unacknowledged advantages, even when those advantages aren't discriminatory. He kind of walks through like what the history of privilege is. And so it didn't start in the 80s, but in 1988. Dr. Peggy McIntosh wrote White Privilege and Male Privilege, a personal account of coming to see correspondences through work and women's studies. And in that, it contained 46 examples of white privilege. So that's kind of the, that article, which I will also link to in the show notes, is kind of the beginning of talking about privilege and what it means and who has it and why it exists and all of that. I'm not going to read the article, but I am going to kind of refer to it a little bit because even though it was written, you know, almost 30 years ago, it's still very appropriate and not a lot has changed, sadly. So there are lots of different types of privilege, white privilege, male privilege, Christian privilege, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Privilege is a social construct. It changes from place to place who has the privilege. But right now, especially in the U.S., that's who has it. So straight people, young people, thin people, beautiful people, people who are not disabled, and people who are not mentally ill. So that list, by the way, I got from my psychology professor. So this was my human sexuality class. So she adds, it may also be safe to add monogamous people and non-kinky people to the list. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute. So we had to write for this journal entry, we had to write down our privileges, essentially. That's basically what Dr. McIntosh does in her article. She lists, I think it's like 46 different ways that she's privileged. And you can read that (laughs) on your own. But for me, I thought I would share a little bit of my own privilege with you. First in my working class family to go to college, when I did finally go, Largely because I'm white, no one questioned where I got, how I got there or made a big deal, even though at the time I was a young single mom. As a freelance writer, I can pitch new publications and be confident that the majority of the pieces that they publish were written by someone who shares my race. No one has ever questioned my sexual orientation or asked me if I am sure that I am straight. If I get pulled over by a cop, I do not fear for my life. No one has ever called my sexual orientation a hobby. When I decided to clean up my life and stop partying, I had family and friends and resources to do that. I attended a predominantly white high school for most of my teen years, and I was never afraid that my guidance counselors were so understaffed that they would fail to put me in the correct class. And I didn't know that that was a thing until I worked as a temp for D.C. public schools. They had us, eight of us, basically doing the guidance counselor's job And putting the kids in D.C. public schools into the next class, whether it was English 10 or the next math, what was shocking and disturbing was that they would pass English 9, but then they would be put back, or they would fail English 9, and then they would go straight to English 10, or there was no kind of rhyme or reason, and they had temps doing it. And that was several years ago, so it may have changed by now, but of course they had a 50% dropout rate. Why go to class if it's not? You don't even know if you're going to be put in the class that you're supposed to be taking. So that was number seven. So number eight, even though I am white and my children are multiracial, no one has ever assumed that I am their nanny. People's implicit bias about me or the various assumptions that people make about me based on my looks usually do not harm me and often benefit me. Number 10, I can be pretty confident that if I were to get accused of something I did not do, I would be assumed innocent until proven guilty. Number 11, I have never had to hide my attraction to the opposite sex. Number 12, when I'm attracted to a man, it is often safe to assume that he's attracted to women. Number 13, because I am considered attractive by society standards, I'm often treated with attention, kindness, and respect, especially from people of the opposite sex. Fourteen, as an attractive person who is a server at a restaurant, I potentially make more money in tips by patrons who find me attractive than I would if I were not considered beautiful by society standards. Number fifteen, I could, if I chose, be completely oblivious about my privilege and it would not affect me negatively. That last one is the basic reason why I'm doing this podcast. Because we have the privilege to be ignorant about our privilege and if you don't fall in a lot of those categories then you don't have that of course <laughs> people are angry so i wanted to start with permission for all of us to be wrong i did a podcast on this a couple of episodes ago how to be wrong this is an opportunity to grow you're allowed not to understand you're allowed to have made mistakes and want to do better you're allowed to feel angry (laughs) you're allowed to disagree with me you know this but sometimes it's helpful when it's said so an example that comes to mind is today is Cinco de Mayo at the recording of this episode and MTV did this great series they call Decoded and it just kind of breaks down common myths in popular culture and ways in which we can be ignorant And so this one was about Cinco de Mayo and it talked about, I'll link it in the show notes, but the end of it was (laughs) don't wear a sombrero or a poncho or a big mustache because you're basically mocking them. Even if you don't mean it that way, we are all learning and we're allowed to be learning. I also want to point out that you can quote unquote look privileged and lack it in certain important ways. Part of this struggle with privilege is that people who are privileged, like I said, can be oblivious to it, and it doesn't affect them, and so they don't see it with their brain, and so they don't admit that it's a thing, and this cycle perpetuates. So I wanted to talk about kink because I just finished a class on human sexuality, and and why not? I mean, if you have the ability to talk about kink in your podcast, why would you not? <laughs> so, there was an article that our professor had us look at by, I think it was, anyway, arguing that kink was a sexual orientation and laid out, I think, some really good reasons for why that could be the case. The thing is, I am not a part of the kinky community it's just occurring to me. that You might not know what that means. I don't think I would have known, (laughs) maybe had an idea, but I've learned a lot in the human sexuality class. It is a way, I don't even know how to define it. (laughs) And it's really hard for me to talk about sex. So I'm definitely going to be stumbling over some words, but it's, I mean, it's a way of being intimate and sexual with with a partner or with more than one partner. And for some people, it's a lifestyle and is a very big part of their identity. So this was the argument that the author was making. It's not just as simple as, it's not a sexual hobby. And to be honest, I have no idea whether or not I would define that as a sexual identity or as a way to lack privilege. But if that's a conclusion she's come to for herself, then I would rather defer to her someone who has thought deeply about what it is than a non-kinky straight hetero person who's just like that's weird i don't know about that i think practicing (laughs) open-mindedness is a skill we can learn to be open-minded and sometimes that's sometimes that's what we have to do so now that we've talked about kink as a potential lack of privilege let's talk about christianity as privilege This is a new revelation to me. And honestly, when I first started thinking about this podcast, I wanted to do the whole podcast on how Christianity is privilege, and in not acknowledging that we are hurting people, essentially. (laughs) So I think it's safe to say that it's not safe to be Muslim in America. It's difficult to even get into the United States if you are Muslim, right, because of the travel ban. But if you live here and you are Muslim, then you have certain probably ways of coping and going about your day. I would imagine that if you're wearing a hijab, which is, um, I'm not going to say the right thing, but it's the covering on a woman's head, then you might be subject to being pointed at. You might even in some parts of the US be turned down for service, which is Atrocious. So you have this whole thing going on where Muslim people are being marginalized and it's dangerous to be Muslim, to just follow your God in the US. And then you have this other group of people, and this is largely, I would say, more traditional leaning Christians who feel that they are being marginalized. They're the ones being hurt and oppressed. And these are, I think, largely white communities, largely people of privilege, socioeconomically maybe not as much, but white straight people for the most part saying, I'm subject to horrible things because I follow Jesus, when I feel like there is a good argument to be made that the choices that they're making and the way that they're living their life is not benefiting a large majority of the rest of the world population and therefore is not following Jesus. Wherever it is you find yourself on the Christian spectrum, you are privileged. And that is something that we have the opportunity to acknowledge. And in being privileged, we have the opportunity to reach out to religions who are who are marginalized and love them, protect them, and provide for their needs in tangible ways. And I would say that even kind of way out there religions fall into the more marginalized because if you strongly believe in some of that stuff and you admit it then you are written off as a quack or as someone who is not fully in touch with reality if it's a christian you're written off as doing like evil (laughs) so i come back to the idea of I think it was John Philip Newell, he was talking about the Four Seasons and the idea that we all are on a journey. The point is not to force other people to go on the journey with us. We are all have our own journey and that will lead us to different places and that's okay and that's the way it's supposed to go. But some of us get more provisions for the journey. So and I say this because a lot of Christians like are very anti-socialism. But I think the way of Jesus is much more you share what you have. How does somebody read the words that Jesus was saying and come to those conclusions? I work for my <laughs> acre of land and fuck you, you can't have it. <laughs> like, And I know it's not that simple, but anyway, that is something I struggle with. I'm reading this book right now about the history of Christianity and how the way we think of Christianity, the very Western European Roman way of being a Christian is not actually how half of the world did Christianity for hundreds and hundreds of years. So up until about the 14th century, I think I'm right on this, there was a thriving thriving Christian communities in the East and in Africa. They were stamped out. So let me back up. They lived peacefully among their Muslim and Buddhist, many other religions, uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Eventually they were stomped out and to a large degree, they were stomped out by those same religions. So that's why I say that privilege is a social construct. But they also had a very different understanding of what it meant to be a Christian than this kind of empire idea that was handed down to us by the Romans. That's not to say that one was better or worse, but it's interesting. And it also negates the idea, the Darwinian religious idea, the more holy religion will flourish because historically that was not how that, it wasn't that it was a bad religion. It was that it was killed. <laughs> it was snuffed out and was marginalized during that time. And, it, and parts of it still exist. There's the Greek Orthodox. I think that's and the Coptic, Ethiopian Coptic Christianity. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But the idea of it as a social construct is fascinating to me because we create it. We kind of make it all up. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have real implications we are amazing creatures. We have prefrontal cortexes. We make it real. And as a society, we make it problematic for people and beneficial for other people. In Little Women, Joe's character had this great line where she was talking to a group of men about whether women should be able to vote. And she was saying like, they were arguing, you know, women are good and pure and the world would be better if women were allowed to vote. And her argument was like, no, <laughs> women shouldn't be allowed to vote because they're good. Like they're human. They're just as human and full of mistakes and goodness and all of that as men. I want to be clear that I'm not making the argument that less privileged people are more pure. We are human. And because we are human, we all have basic human rights. And for those of us who have more, I guess the question becomes. Do we have the responsibility to work towards equality? And I think the devastating and freeing thing is that we don't have to. But when we don't, really scary things start to happen. Our political landscape, to me, feels really scary right now. But at the same time, I think there's good evidence the world is slowly getting better And what is amazing is that all of these people who were resting on their laurels (laughs) have woken up. Dr. McIntosh wrote this list. It was a call to action. Like, what do we do in the face of privilege? So the first thing she says is admit it. The first step is admitting you have a race. Be white (laughs) if you are white. Admit that racism exists and start to take notice. Notably, she adds, don't impose. Think about what you say to people before you say it. Don't impose your views on people of color. Don't blame people of color for racism. Number two, listen. This is a quote. I found that really listening to people of color and believing their experience is eye-opening. Um, Shut up already. <laughs> honor experience, honor outrage. It's so amazing to me how appropriate this is for today. Honor outrage. That is such a powerful thing to do. Educate yourself. And I think it's safe to add, don't lean on people of color or women. Don't rely on them to be the spokesperson for their group. In a way, it's like if a family lost a child and you were trying to find out more and help them, you wouldn't go to them and say, what is it like to be a person who has lost a child? That would feel weird and painful. Number four is broaden your experience. Learn about other cultures, not by asking, but by spending time with people without interrogating them. Do some other small, unreturnable kindness for a person of color. Smile at someone who's not white, stop expecting things in return. And these are, they're so small and they're not the answer. But if 500 people start to shift their perspective and open their awareness about their own privilege, that's going to make a big impact. This podcast is created by a white woman and I'm talking about my privilege. I'm talking about people who lack privilege. But Peggy McIntosh is a white woman. I'm a white woman. At some point, we have, to, we have to stop listening to white people talk about people of color. Let's celebrate the artists and the doctors and the people who, by our society's standards, lack privilege, who are doing amazing things, because right now, many fields are predominantly white are predominantly male and part of working toward equality is changing that landscape oh i didn't say at the beginning of this throwing light has a facebook group now so i would love to hear your thoughts and hear more about what you think about privilege and how it has affected your life that's it that's all i've got (laughs) Um, if you like this podcast, please leave review on iTunes. I would be much obliged. Love to you. So much love. Here it is. Your break for verses. I needed to hold her. I got up and crept towards the room Sammy and I shared in our little apartment. I peeked through the bedroom door. She was curled up on the bottom bunk wrapped in her ultra-soft bright pink Barbie blanket. Barry the Bear and Miss Elephant slept quietly by her side. I sat down beside her and brushed her thick brown hair out of her face. She looked so perfect, with her chubby cheeks and princess pajamas. She was perfect. How did this happen? I felt a tear roll down my cheek, and then another, and then a third. Before long, I was sobbing. I lay down beside my girl and cried as silently as I could. I knew only two things clearly in that moment. My baby girl had been hurt, and where I stood at 23 years old and nine months sober, it was my job to keep it from ever happening again.